Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 28, 2 Samuel chapters 18 and 19. Well, as we ended our previous lesson, we received a, a sad, almost embarrassing narrative of this aged and worn down King David standing at the gates of Mahanaim, right, imploring his war-bound army to go gently with Avshalom. Now one can only imagine the perplexed, maybe even disgruntled reaction of his his troops and commanders at such a notion that uh, above all else, they should seek not to harm the very one they're going out to battle against. The one that has caused all of this death and mayhem. And all because David has some twisted sense of loyalty and of father-to-son affection towards Absalom that caused him to somehow overlook the fact that his son had become not only an enemy of David and of God's kingdom, but of God himself. Because Absalom was trying to unseat God's anointed king. You know, I received a disturbing correspondence a few days ago that I think is... No coincidence. And I want to take just a couple of minutes to sermonize as this has direct relationship to our lesson today. We spent a couple of moments last week exploring Yeshua's admonition and warning in the book of Luke about what the attitude and expectation of a believer must be who accepts the honor of being a leader in the community of God worshipers or even to what a simple follower of Yeshua must be. And ideally, the acceptance of a divine commission of leadership must put obedience and duty to the Lord above all earthly treasures, even one's own family. Now this is not something we see happen very often in the Christian community. Most typically, the actual order of importance and value that we establish in our lives is family first and then God. Now, I won't review that part of the lesson, but I would like to make this additional comment so that there's no misunderstanding. It is not the ideal decision to first create a family and then decide to become a devoted leader in the kingdom but it's probably the most common way that it happens. Rather, it's always best to first commit to the Lord and then evaluate if your particular commitment will even accommodate the earthly treasure of a family. Or such a decision at least should play the pivotal role in choosing a spouse who must share our commitment wholeheartedly. Otherwise, unwittingly, we may have played a game of bait and switch that's bound to cause terrible family turmoil and pain. 
That is, we married a person under one set of mutually agreed premises and then later in a one-sided decision decided to make a right turn and pursue a whole different lifestyle and set of priorities, no matter how godly sounding or well-intended. A set that that other spouse is not equipped for or hasn't been called by God for and maybe doesn't genuinely even embrace. Nothing is more common in Christian leadership today than for a man to marry, produce a couple of children, and then at some later point to decide to commit him and his family to ministry. The good Christian wife follows along, even if reluctantly, and tries to make the best of it. The children are pawns. They have little choice in the matter. But all too often, the enthusiastic husband and Christian leader suddenly finds himself with a burned out and discouraged wife and angry children who never signed up for this. Thus, the two-part lesson is that whilst marrying and starting a family first is by no means a disqualification of a later participation in Christian leadership. It does necessarily narrow and limit the extent and type of assignment that one can reasonably commit to. A man in this type of situation cannot be a good attentive husband and involved father and then suddenly nearly abandon his family for the sake of a new, his newfound mission saying that God comes first. Rather, because of the path that he first undertook, he must take on the commission of his leadership understanding there's going to be severe limitations. The second part of the lesson is that only a few are actually destined to become full-time Christian leaders. Nowhere in the Scriptures do we get the sense that we were ever meant to have boatloads of Christian leaders in order to lead the Messiah's flock. Unfortunately, Christian leadership today has all too often become a vocation or it's become a profession, not a true divine calling or anointing. That we might have a great desire to be a Christian leader by no means we ought to be one or that God has willed such a life for us and by extension for our families. St. Paul cautioned potential leaders in the kingdom about this very thing, even advising that if possible, in the long run, it's probably better for a leader to avoid marriage and family, especially if your particular assignment brings with it a very uncertain future. By no means am I saying or advocating, and the Bible doesn't say it, that Christian leadership and family are mutually exclusive. Rather, I'm saying count the cost before you make either commitment to marriage or to Christian leadership because one is going to have a very definite effect upon the other. I tell you honestly, I was only able 
to enter Christian leadership because my wife, whom I married before this decision, wholeheartedly wanted to enter into it with me as a full partner. In fact, and I won't share the story with you, my wife was the first of the two of us to be given the knowledge from the Lord that this was coming. Neither of us had any idea what it would lead to, but we, and especially she, knew significant changes would happen. And while we've had our moments, I'll tell you, of wrestling and difference of opinion over what extent of time and attention that we devote to our ministry leadership that by definition takes away from each other and from our family. It's worked out. Because we both realized that our zealousness had to be bridled due to a set of circumstances an existing commitment to a large family that came into existence before this new devotion to Christian leadership occurred. David, I'm sure, never realized that being God's anointed leader meant that he would be expected to accept the just and punitive death of one of his own beloved children and then move on without excessive grieving. So while we can rightly see the wrong in his behavior and in his response towards Absalom's demise, we also ought to have some genuine sympathy and understanding for David. And we ought to always remember this true story whenever we begin to wonder if Christian leadership is for us. Okay, let's read 2 Samuel 18, chapter 18, verse 6 and forward. Read some more of this story. Page 353 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. So the people went out into the field against Israel. The battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there by David's servants. There was a terrible slaughter that day of 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread all over the countryside. The forest devoured more people that day than did the sword. Avshalom happened to meet some of David's servants. Avshalom was riding his mule. And the mule walked under the thick branches of a big terebinth tree. His head got caught in the terebinth so that he was left hanging between earth and sky as the mule went on from under him. Someone saw it and told Yoav, I saw Avshalom hanging in a terebinth. And Yoav asked the young man who told him, Here now, you saw it. So why didn't you strike him to the ground then and there? I would have had to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt besides. And the man replied to Yoav, Even if I were to get a thousand pieces of silver, I wouldn't raise my hand against the son of the king. After all, while we were listening, the king ordered you, Avishai and Ittai, be careful that no one touches young Absalom. Or if I had pretended that I didn't know, the king would have known otherwise anyway. 
And you wouldn't have interceded for me either. And Yoav said, I can't waste my time arguing with you. So he took three darts in his hand and rammed them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive, hanging from the terebinth. Then Yoav's ten young armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. And Yoav sounded the shofar. And the people returned from pursuing Israel because Yoav held back the troops. And then Absalom, they took Absalom and threw him into a big pit in the forest, piled a big heap of stones over him, and all Israel fled, each one to his tent. In his own lifetime, Absalom had taken and raised for himself the pillar which stands in the king's valley because he said, I don't have a son to preserve the memory of my name. So he named the pillar after himself and it's called Avshalom's Monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Sadok, said, Let me run now and bring news to the king that Adonai has judged in his favor by releasing him from his enemies. And Yoav said to him, You're not to be the one to bring the news today. You can convey news another day, but today you will not bring the news because the king's son is dead. And then Yoav said to the Ethiopian, Go tell the king what you saw. The Ethiopian bowed to Joab and ran off. Ran off. But Ahimaaz the son of Zadok said to Joab, Come what may please, let me also run after the Ethiopian. And Joab answered, Why do you want to run, my son? You won't receive any reward for bringing the news. I don't care. Whatever happens, I want to run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the road, through the desert flats, and outran the Ethiopian. Now David was sitting between the two gates. A watchman went up to the roof of the gate, out onto the wall, raised his eyes, looked, and saw there a man running by himself. And the watchman cried out and told the king. And the king said, if he's alone, he has good news to tell. And as he ran along and came close, the watchman saw another man running and called to the gatekeeper. There's another man running by himself. And the king said, oh, he too must have good news. And the watchman said, the first one runs like Ahimaaz, the son of Sadok. And the king said, oh, he's a good man. He'll come with good news. Ahimaaz called to the king, Shalom! And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground and said, Blessed be Adonai your God who has handed over the men who rebelled against my lord the king. And the king asked, Is everything alright with young Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, Well, when Yoav sent the king's servant and meet your servant, I, I saw a big commotion, but I didn't know what it was. The king said, Go, stand over there. So he went and stood there. And then up came the Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian said, there's good news for the Lord my King, for Adonai has judged in your favor and rid you of all those who rebelled against you. And the king asked the Ethiopian, Is everything alright with young Absalom? And the Ethiopian answered, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rebel against you in order to harm you be as that young man is. Some subtle terminology in this passage tells us a lot about the Lord's mindset in this battle between David's and Absalom's forces. Verse 6 says, So the people went out into the field against Israel. In Hebrew it says, The Am went out to fight against Israel. 
Now, as a general rule, in the Bible, the term Am refers to God's people, His set-apart people. But isn't Israel also God's people? But here we have one set against the other. The essence of this sentence is that in this instance, we have a battle of the Am, God's true people, against Israel. Those who were supposed to be with God, but at the moment weren't. And as we move along in this chapter and the next one, we're going to see an amazing series of parallels as a precursor to Messiah's experience in His relationship with His people, the Jews, and with the rest of Israel. St. Paul, in a number of verses, explains that there is a part of Israel that is the true Israel, while there is another part of Israel that has fallen away for the moment. The defining, dividing line here in 2 Samuel 18 is those Israels who stand on one side with God's anointed king David versus those who stand on the opposite side of the line with that evil usurper, Absalom. In the New Testament, the dividing line between the Am and Israel is that the Am are those Israelites and others who stand with Yeshua versus those Israelites and others who do not. In both cases, at the time of David and at the time of Christ, it is not that the Am remains Israel and the other Hebrews are no longer Israel. Rather, it is that there is a part of Israel that remains standing with God, the Am, and another part that has fallen away. But physically, they all remain Israel. And St. Paul doesn't question that. Thus, the true difference between the Am and Israel, in the context of the verse in Second Samuel and in St. Paul's writings, is a spiritual difference. Well, the battle for the control of the throne of Israel takes place somewhere called the Forest of Ephraim. Now, there's an enormous disagreement just where this place is. Many scholars say that this is located not far from Mahanaim, which is in the Transjordan. And the name is not indicative of the tribal territory it's in. Other scholars say that's preposterous to say that the forest of Ephraim is in any other place than the territory of Ephraim, which is located on the west side of the Jordan River. Wherever it was, the wooded area was treacherous. And the very terrain itself caused more deaths of Absalom's soldiers than than did being killed by David's men during the battle. Well, the scene is essentially of untrained, undisciplined, panic-stricken troops who fell into pits, fell over cliffs, broke their legs by catching them between rocks and so on. Over 20,000 men of Israel, Absalom's men, died there that day. 
Now verse 9 begins the infamous story of Absalom's death. The chaotic nature of Absalom's folly continues. When as he's trying to escape back to Jerusalem, he rides under a tree in the forest of Ephraim and he gets caught in it. His royal mule, not a donkey, a mule, rides off, leaving him hanging there. Now, a lot's been made about the ironic nature of Abraham dying, or rather, Absalom dying because he was hanging by his hair. Many fine sermons draw parallels to the Nazarites who have long hair and to other matters of, of pride all revolving around hair. Just one problem. Not one word in this passage speaks of Absalom's hair. It does not say he was caught by his hair. The complete Jewish Bible renders it correctly. But if you have another version, it doesn't. Hair is sear. And despite all the English translations that insert the word hair, that word's not there. Rather, it says he was caught by his rosh, his head. Ancient Hebrew sages made commentary that it must have been his hair that was spoken of, and they assume this because of the pride he had in his hair that we read about early on in the stories of Absalom. He may well have had a forked branch grasp his head or maybe stick under his neck. We're not informed one way or the other. But I think the point of the story gets diverted when we make his long hair the issue. Assuming he's even still wearing his hair long in these days. I think the better symbolism from this story is that riding a mule was reserved for royalty in that era. And since a mule was a mix of a donkey and a horse, it was considered against the Torah for Hebrews to breed such animals because it was an illicit mixture. Thus they had to purchase, if they wanted them, these terribly expensive animals from their neighbors. So here we have Absalom showing off, riding a royal mule, holding himself up as a king, And then suddenly a tree gobbles him up. And it leaves him hanging there while his royal mount gallops off. He is royalty no more. And this is a divine sign that the Lord has stripped him of his false claims and exposed him for any commoner who happens by to see that he is not, he's never been a king over God's kingdom. A soldier happens to see Avshalom hanging helplessly in that tree. And instead of doing what a warrior would do naturally, killing the man, he freezes. He knows who this is. He knows that King David made it exceptionally clear that nobody was to harm Avshalom. So he goes to his commander, Yoaf. Tells him what he's found. Yoaf's indignant. He wants to know why this soldier wouldn't, of course, do his duty and even take advantage of his good fortune. 
All the soldier would have had to do is kill Absalom, and then he would have collected a handsome reward, even become probably a renowned man. But the soldier essentially says, no way. The soldier stands up to his commander, and he blusters right back at him. He says, I wouldn't kill Absalom even for a treasure chest full of silver because the king gave orders against it. (laughs) Further, says the soldier, while Joab is at the moment dressing him down for not killing Absalom, he equally has no doubt that if he did kill Absalom and David reacted viciously over it, that Joab wouldn't lift a finger to intervene on his behalf. Joab stormed off. And he took three darts and he stuck them into Absalom's chest. The Hebrew word is shevatim. It means sticks, not darts. doesn't mean spears either. The idea is that Joab wounded, he fully incapacitated Absalom, leaving him for others to finish off. Joab sent his armor bearers, his personal bodyguard, to go and kill Absalom. The number of armor bearers is listed as Ten, a minyan. This is to impart the understanding to the reader that the killing of Absalom was divinely ordained. As ten is the number of completion or perfection. The armor bearers did no wrong in slaying Absalom. In fact, they were God's hand of justice. Yoav was a good general. The moment Absalom was dead, he blew the shofar. This was a signal for his army to stop pursuing the fleeing Israelites and to return for an assembly. There was no point in any more killing. The cause for the killing was dead. And after all, this has been a battle of Hebrew upon Hebrew. And there was no intent to eradicate the opposition to extinction. Further, Joab was a political man. He knew full well that it was time to start the healing process and to bring all the tribes together again under King David. So it would be duly noted by the Israelites that the moment David won, the killing stopped. Hopefully there would be no further retribution. But that was yet to be seen. So there was a great deal of apprehension among those who had sided with Absalom over what might come next. Verse 17 explains that Absalom was denied a respectful burial. Rather, he was unceremoniously thrown into a pit. And he had rocks piled upon him. This sort of treatment is reserved for the worst of the worst. Recall the evil Achan, a Hebrew, as Joshua was fighting against the Canaanites and how Achan stole some of God's holy property from Jericho and it caused Israel to be humiliated in battle. Let me remind you of this. Joshua chapter 7. Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, the son of Zerach, with the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his son's daughters, cattle, donkey, sheep, tent, everything he had brought them up to the Achor Valley. And Joshua said, Why have you brought trouble on us? Today Adonai will bring trouble on you. And Israel stoned him to death. They burned him to ashes and stoned them. 
And over him they piled a great bound of stones, which is there to this day. Finally Adonai turned away from his fierce anger, and this is why they call that place the Valley of, of Akor, which means trouble to this day. In a later event, we see another incidence of disrespectful treatment of a corpse as punishment for evil that greatly resembles what happened to Absalom. We find that in Joshua chapter 8. So Joshua burned down I turned it into a tell forever so that it remains a ruin to this day. The king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening and at sundown Joshua gave an order and they took his carcass down from the tree, threw it at the entrance to the city gate and piled upon it a big heap of stones. Verse 18 gives an interesting piece of information. That Absalom had raised up a monument to himself before he died. And that David obviously allowed it to remain standing. And the purpose for this monument is born as much from superstition as narcissism. But there's a bit of a mystery surrounding all this. Absalom says he did this because he had no sons. And yet 2 Samuel 14.27 says he had three sons. Some rabbis say that his sons had all died before Absalom was killed. Josephus, on the other hand, says that's not so. He says that, it is, that Absalom's three sons were such a disappointment to him that he considered them as having no sons at all. None were suited to royalty in his eyes. None were worthy of succession to the throne. And none were even worthy of carrying on the family name. So Absalom's lament, I have no sons, is an exaggeration. It's just a folk saying. Right, in which he essentially disowned his sons so he sees himself as no longer having any sons. Well, the superstition part of erecting this monument is that a person's spiritual essence only continues on in the afterlife for as long as, the, as his name is remembered and spoken out loud. Thus, if the sons are disowned from the family, then their offspring is also not part of the family. So now there's nobody to speak Absalom's name. So by having his name inscribed on a public monument to himself, people will come and visit it and look upon it and speak his name, which is a traditional custom since all Middle Easterners subscribe to this superstition and thus he was assured of his ongoing afterlife. Now many say that this monument that's being spoken of here is today one and the same as Absalom's tomb in the Kidron Valley. That's very doubtful. Now, the location of the monument, as given in verse 18, is the King's Valley. And that indeed is very nearby the structure of Absalom's tomb as we see it today. For centuries, there's an interesting tradition that passers-by would come and throw rocks at the monument to show their disdain for Absalom. They would even bring their children there to punish them. 
and show them the monument to remind them of what happens to rebellious sons using Absalom as the example. I don't think it's a bad idea. Take your kid out to the graveyard every now and then. You know? <laughs> but the reality is that this structure that presently exists was first built in the age of the Greeks, long after the time of Absalom. So it's not clear whether this was or was not the exact location of the monument that we read about here in 2 Samuel. Anyway, in verse 19, the son of the high priest Sadok is so excited that the war is over and that King David is victorious that he wants to go to him quickly with the good news as he knows David is on pins and needles waiting to hear the outcome of all this. But as the next few passages unfold, it seems evident that while Ahimaaz knew the war was over, he didn't know for sure that Absalom was dead. Or if he did, he he really didn't know how it happened. Now, Yoav insists that somebody else run to tell King David what happened because... He knew that David was fully capable of killing the messenger. And Absalom's status was far more important to David than the outcome of this battle. Ahimaaz, however, was a dedicated young man. He had been the one assigned to personally bring whatever intelligence had been gathered in Jerusalem about Absalom's plans to King David in Machanaim. He felt close to the king. He knew that David trusted him. He felt that it was his job to inform David of important news regardless of what it might mean for him personally. But Joab wanted to use a man described in Hebrew as the Cushi, meaning Cushite, sometimes translated to English as Ethiopian. The Cushi were the race of black-skinned people, most of who at this time lived in Africa, primarily up north. Some have tried to make this into a biblical racial issue, but there's no evidence of that. It's just a statement of fact. The Cushite was obviously someone Joab trusted. But remember that Ahimaaz was not only close to David, he was also the high priest's son. So Joab was more concerned to guard the safety of this person who came from an important family than to be concerned for the well-being of a common trooper. So he sent the Ethiopian. Well, in the end, Ahimaaz was so determined that Joab allowed both he and the Cushite to go to David with the news that um, he went. And Ahimaaz was apparently known as a very swift runner. And even his style of running was recognizable. And as he nears the city of Machanaim, the guard on the watchtower sees him coming. He calls down to David. David, trying to muster up all the hope he can, tells himself that if it's a single runner, it must be good news. The second runner spotted. And David insists that since they're running separately, that he too must have other good news. 
David, we are told, was sitting between the gates. Walled cities often had two sets of gates, an inner and an outer, a double set of protection. It's hard not to see the parallel of David sitting on a chair at the gate, as did Eli in Samuel's era, doing the same thing. But when Eli gets the devastating news about his sons, he falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. Well, David isn't going to die, but he's going to get some pretty devastating news. Ahimaaz arrives first. He approaches David. And after going through the usual respectful protocol of greeting, he blurts out that the enemy has been handed over to David. In other words, victory. But David just sloughs that off. And he immediately asks about Absalom. Ahimaaz kind of stammers. Right? Says that he knows Absalom was captured and there was this, some kind of big commotion all around him, but he really didn't know what it was all about. David impatiently dismisses Ahimaaz and he starts to question the Cushite. The Cushite soldier naively assumes that Absalom's death will be as welcome news as confirmation of the victory. Wrong. Let's move on to chapter 19. We're just going to read the first 15 verses. Chapter 19. Trembling, the king went up to the room over the gate, weeping and crying, Oh, my Avshalom, my son, my son Avshalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Avshalom, my son, my son. And Yoav was told, The king is weeping, mourning for Avshalom. Thus the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day that the king was grieving for his son so that the people entered the city furtively that day. The way that people who are ashamed creep away when fleeing the battlefield. Meanwhile, the king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son Avshalom, oh Avshalom, my son, my son. Joab went inside to the king and said, Today you made all your servants feel ashamed. They saved your life today and the lives of your sons and your daughters and your wives and your concubines. But you love those who hate you. You hate those who love you. Today you said that princes and servants mean nothing to you. For I can see today that it would have pleased you more if Avshalom had lived today and we had all died. Now get up! Get out! Speak heart to heart with your servants. For I swear by Adonai that if you don't go out, not one man will stay here with you tonight. And it will be worse for you than all the misfortunes you've suffered from your youth until now. So the king got up. He sat in the city gateway. And when all the people were told, now the king is sitting in the gate, they came before the king. Meanwhile, Israel had fled, each man to his tent, and throughout all the tribes of Israel there was dissension among all the people. They were saying, The king delivered us from the power of our enemies, and he saved us from the power of the Philistines. But now he has fled the land to escape Absalom. However, Absalom, who we anointed to rule us, is dead in battle. So now why doesn't anyone suggest to bring the king back? 
King David sent this message to Sadok and Evitar the priests. Ask the leaders of Judah, why are you the last to bring the king back to his palace? The king has already heard that all Israel wants to return him to his palace. You're my kinsman, my flesh and bone, so why are you the last to bring back the king? Also tell Amasa, you are my flesh and bone. May God bring terrible curses on me and worse ones yet from now if, uh, if you are not the permanent commander of my army instead of Joab. Thus he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah around as if they were one man so that they sent a message to the king. Come back, you and all your servants. David is grief-stricken. He's destroyed. And in his inconsolable state, he completely forgets who he is in God. He forgets what his duties are as God's anointed king of Israel, where his loyalties and priorities ought to lay. Over and over, the only words he seems to be able to form in his mouth are, Oh, my son Absalom, my son Absalom. He wishes he had died instead of his son. No doubt he was completely sincere in that wish. You know, I think I can understand that. On more than one occasion, I've looked at my wife, my children, my grandchildren, thought, maybe selfishly, please, Lord, allow me to die before any of them. I don't think I could stand it if any of them perished while I was left to deal with it. And yet I know so many spouses who have gone on before them, whose sons and daughters have, have died of disease or in defense of their country or in some terrible accident, and who found the inner strength to not only go on living productively and with joy, but also to glorify the Lord in the midst of it all. Sadly, the great King David didn't have the inner strength at this time. He only wanted to die so that the pain would finally leave him in peace. He cared more about the demise of this evil son than he did for all of his other loyal sons and daughters who were still alive. He cared more about that than his wives, his soldiers who had risked their lives for him, his fellow countrymen who needed his leadership more than ever at this critical moment. Rashi makes a poignant remark about the opening word of this chapter. Trembling, the king went up to the room over the gate. Rashi sees this trembling not as an intense state of mourning, but rather as an intense state of guilt. David knew at the bottom of his heart 
that even Absalom's rebellion was his fault. All of this horror and death upon his family and his kingdom was the outpouring of God's curse upon him for David's terrible sins, mostly revolving around Bathsheba. He felt personal responsibility and there was no shaking it. And you know what? He was right. And it is a lesson that we must all prepare for if we're going to sin against the Lord. If we are going to ignore His Word and His commandments, then we need to prepare for the worst. You know, I cringe when I hear thoughtful believers state that there is no consequence anymore for sinning. Not earthly, not heavenly. Nothing could be less scriptural. Nothing could be less accurate. Our sins indeed have been forgiven upon the stripes and the blood of our Savior Yeshua, but only in the spiritual sphere. We will indeed bear the earthly consequences for our trespasses as David did and would until his dying breath. My prayer is that we will all recognize this. And therefore we will seek God's strength that we avoid sinning in the first place. That begins with accepting His Messiah and then immediately learning His ways and His Word. But if we should consider something else, then I pray that we recognize when God's punishment is upon us, as did David and not deflect that responsibility as though our trespasses had no manifestation upon ourselves or others so long as we're righteous before God. I doubt any of us will ever achieve such a lofty place in God's eyes as did King David. But that didn't stop the Lord from also laying a burdensome curse upon him for his awful trespasses. We'll look at Joab's response to David's weeping and mourning next week.